The preaching of God's Word is in Exodus chapter 34, as we come to the end of this series on the Lord's self-proclamation. Exodus 34, and particularly considering verse 9, but for the sake once more of seeing something of the context, here again the Word of God from verse 5, Exodus 34, reading from verse 5 through verse 9. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, and to the third and to the fourth generation. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people." Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for Thine inheritance. It's particularly that record of Paul of Moses' prayer, verse 9, that we consider. And you'll notice that this flows from the Lord's revelation, His Word. And you see here a pattern that is instructive for our own piety. If we wish to grow in prayer we first need to give due consideration to God's Word. And so here's the Lord revealing, proclaiming, speaking to Moses. And it's this which then brings forth Moses to speak to God. And this is, of course, a regular pattern. And surely we should see this in our own piety, in practice, in secret, in family, in public as well, that there would be, as it were, in no trivial way, but in a holy and most glorious way, a conversation that is held forth in prayer. God speaking to us by His Word, and we returning in accordance to that Word, petitioning, praising, thanking, interceding, confessing, and so on. You'll notice that the response of Moses has a particular focus, and it flows necessarily from what the Lord has revealed. Remember, the Lord has revealed His goodness to Moses in all of the various aspects here that we've considered. His mercy, His goodness, His truth, His faithfulness, forgiveness of sins, and yet that this is not to be presumed upon, for this does not uh, banish His justice as it is testified. He will by no means clear the guilty. And we saw in the last time that we were in this passage that this brought Moses low. And it's a strange, perhaps enigma to the world and even to the uh, newly initiated Christian that the most full display of God's mercy is actually what brings us low before Him. And yet, not to the loss of confidence, nor to the loss of peace or joy, but rather it is the magnifying of God when we see His grace. He alone is worthy of glory, praise, and honor. And Moses makes himself small as we considered, bowed his head, and worshipped. And now he petitions. He's brought low, 
But what's interesting for us is that in his low state and his humility before the Lord, his faith is made strong. Now, this is helpful for us in our own day, where everywhere it seems to be the culture has infiltrated the church to make confidence big and barrel-chested, as it were, and so on. But rather, we see consistently in the Scripture that where there's gracious confidence, it is magnified in humility. And as Moses is brought low, his faith is strengthened, having been fed by the Word of God, and he makes some of the most bold claims before the Lord. Think of what he says. If now I found grace in thy side, or it could be since now, in light of the fact that you've shown me grace, O Lord, a high title used, similar to king, let my Lord, my King, I pray thee, I petition thee, go among us. Here, the high King of heaven, he's petitioning this God to actually dwell with, live with, abide with, and walk with this people, and even you know, acknowledges, for it is a stiff-necked people. And so, in other words, he's not casually and differently and with a glib smile on his face saying, you know, this is the thing I'm supposed to say. He's actually posturing two things. The greatness of God is transcendence. The stiff-neckedness and the sinfulness of his people. And he's saying, yet walk with us. How can he bring those together? How could it be that Moses would say, Whereas you are the Lord God, most glorious. We heard our brother pray of His holiness and so on. And all of this true. And Moses is aware. And he sees and he knows. And he's been the experience of the stiff-neckedness of this people. And he's seen and witnessed not only their sin, but as he says, our sin, our iniquity, our sin. How can he put these together? Well, he doesn't put it together by some trivializing of God's mercy. But rather, while he's planted with his face to the ground, he appeals to the Lord's mercy. See, he has found, as it were, the great encouragement that comes not by some you know, common and natural and human-centered uh, uh, strength, but rather in the brokenness of a sense of sin. And yet, the confidence of the grace that has been found, he petitions God for the greatest blessings that one can ask. So you see them, walk with us, dwell with us, be with us, pardon our iniquity and our sin. And here what is striking, of course, above all, take us for thine inheritance. Make us your treasure. Count us to be that which you delight in. Brethren, these are big things, significant things, things that if we have a true sight of our sin, we would hesitate to mention. And when you see people casually making these kinds of requests, you can guarantee two things. They neither understand the nature of their sin, nor do they actually understand the nature of God's grace. Moses images it for us so well as he rests squarely and solely upon the Lord's grace, asking for the biggest things without the slightest cover-up, 
neglect or ignoring of the wickedness of God's people. It is the related truth to what God says elsewhere. I will do this, yet not for your sake will I do this, but for my name's sake. God has has said this on several occasions. Moses picks it up and he says now, because of your grace, bless this people. It doesn't elevate the people to a position they don't have. He rather acknowledges their demerits, their faults, but he's seen something that overcomes it. The grace of God. And that strengthens his appeal and gives him encouragement, which if we were to extend our series, we would see how the Lord responds in verse 10, Behold, I make a covenant, and so on, that he would take this people as his own. We wish to look at the benefits of the Lord's self-proclamation as our set forth before us in Moses' prayer. Firstly, looking at the benefit of fellowship. Secondly, the benefit of pardon. And thirdly, the benefit of belonging. The benefit of fellowship, pardon, and belonging. And so what you'll notice is all three of these things are, of course, taken from the text as fellowship comes from his petition to go among us as pardon comes from that which he says, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and belonging from that which he says, take us for thine inheritance. And yet, just as the Lord proclaimed his goodness before Moses, and yet it was in a variety of ways manifested, and yet one and the same goodness, we can say these three benefits specified are but uh, the outworking of the grand benefit that is held forth in God's goodness. So in other words, it's God's goodness looked at through three different uh, aspects. And so we look then first at the benefit of God's goodness and the benefit of fellowship. Moses says, go among us. could be translated, and the verb is often translated as walk among us. And preposition there, among, is a word that could be in be with us, walk in our midst, walk among us. And so the point is, we don't just want, I'm not just asking for your name to be, as it were, put upon us distantly somehow and you carry on. I actually am praying for your intimate, near fellowship to be with us. I don't want, if we could use this expression, you to be as a deistic notion, right? So, We don't have to be well-versed in deism, but the notion of deism historically was this idea that God is, and yet He sort of starts the universe and then distances Himself from it, leaving it to the natural law and conscience and so on, but He doesn't really interact with the world or with His people. Not only is that uh, a sinful thought because it is uh, an idolatrous thought, It's certainly not the notion that Moses has in his request. He's saying, Lord, I want you nearby. I'm asking that you, the glorious God, and remember, it wasn't long before this that Moses had asked, Lord, show me your glory, and he was said, no man shall see my glory and live. And yet, he has now seen, as it were, the manifestation of God's goodness, and he says, yet we need you. We need you with us. We need you to be near us. We need you to be walking in our midst. God's presence, in other words, 
words is sought, not just the title or doctrine or even his word, but his actual presence dwelling in the camp. Of course, there were things that the Lord would establish to be emblematic and encouraging regarding thoughts of his presence, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, you'll remember. And yet, there were many occasions, at least several occasions, we should say, where the Lord's people mistakenly took the sign for the thing signified. The arks here will be successful, but they had spurned God's fellowship. And so the ark was in that way um, no testimony of God's presence. Moses is, as it were, saying, we don't just want the sign of your presence. We want you, yourself, with us. Notice in Leviticus in chapter 26, to help shed light on some of this, Leviticus in chapter 26, there in that verse 12, here the Lord testifying of His tabernacle then says, and I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be My people. You see, this notion of walking among is a particularized idea of the covenant that God has established. I don't want, Moses is saying, you to be, as it were, husband who is distant, always traveling, going here and there, and effectively we're left with a marriage on paper. right? I don't want you to be one who's exchanged vows and now you go and live your life and you carry on and do all of these things. I want you to be as a husband in the home. I want you to be with me walking with me. But notice Moses isn't just saying with me, but he is asking that it would be with us. We see something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul picks up on this truth and he sets it in the context of an exhortation, but you'll notice the truth that he is founding his exhortation upon. 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, there at verse 16. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So brethren, we see here, in other words, not simply this Old Testament sign of the ark being with the people of God, but rather the truth of what that was signifying. God truly dwelling with His people, which Paul says is true for us, the church today. So this is what Moses seeks, which is, of course, a tremendous benefit. You can think of marriages that, though right marriages, leave one or the other spouse in a difficult position. Perhaps, for instance, the husband is aloof. Perhaps the wife is bitter, whatever it might be. And you can think there's a lawful marriage and yet the marriage leaves much to be desired. And you can then look upon marriages where the husband is committed, diligent, devoted. The wife is equally so. And what Paul exhorts is more and more uh, lived out by them. The wife submits to her husband as unto the Lord and the husband loves the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That is a marriage full of benefit. It's not just a marriage on paper. It's not just a lawful marriage. It is a flourishing marriage. 
There's benefit in that. Now think of this for a moment. Fundamentally, that's what's being asked here. I want you to dwell with us and all that that means. I want you to be our God, our provider, our leader, our governor, the one who loves us, even as you've said you would. And of course, spiritually, this means to hold communion with God. And so it's not just that, you know, in earthly marriages, you can look at some and say, well, that woman has a very strong and handsome and wealthy man, and that woman doesn't have the same. It's not just comparable or comparative sorts of things. When we think of what God has given His people and what Moses is seeking, He is, in some sense, going in an audacious way saying, we want the best and the greatest privilege there is, the God of heaven and earth, to be near us. Brethren, that, in light of what Moses goes on to say, it is a stiff-necked people. Could you imagine for a moment, you know, a matchmaker, if you would consider it that way, finding a woman who's stiff-necked, bitter, and is unfaithful, and going to a man, wealthy, handsome, strong, and saying, would you dwell with her because she's stiff-necked? Would you come and be her husband because she's not all that faithful? Would you turn to her and commit yourself to her because she's already proven that she won't hold fast to all that you say? And then you get a picture of what Moses is doing. He's fundamentally acknowledging the weakness of God's people, himself included. He's pointing out in his appeal, which doesn't make sense naturally. Look at her faults. Look at her weakness. Look at her sin, as he'll go on to say. And so if I found, notice the language, grace in thy sight, would you go among us? What an astounding petition that is. The only way that we will ever enjoy Your presence, God, is if You in grace, in accordance to what You've just revealed of Yourself, lovingly, generously, mercifully, graciously, bear with us. Brethren, this is something we need to understand in our own day. Any presence of God among us is an immeasurable grace that none of us deserve in the least. None of us deserves God's kindness in the least of things. None of us deserves to hear one word of God because each of us has spurned multiple times His word. Each of us has spoken much, talked much, talked largely. We in our prayers with tears on our faces and feelings of great zeal committed ourselves, vowed ourselves, and committed ourselves with diligence to follow the Lord only to show later on how weak we are. Bitterness creeps in. Words creep out. Actions happen. Faults follow. And if the Lord would treat us as we deserve, He would never set foot among us at all. Moses gets it. He sees that there's no appeal to be made to the woman, the bride, the church. The appeal can only be made to God, His grace, 
His goodness. You and I need to learn to pray like that. You and I need to learn to appeal to His grace. And not, as it were, draw false comfort from relative improvements here and there. We are to give thanks for those because those are sweet testimonies of His mercy and kindness. But if you and I wish to grow in the bold petitions and believing petitions and assured petitions that bring comfort to us, we have to direct the whole weight of our soul's expectation upon the Lord's grace only. To enjoy His fellowship is something that can only be enjoyed by His grace. Because none of us can come. You think for a moment in the life of Esther and other occasions in the Scriptures where it was, here is this emperor, this king, this royal one who has the parade of the choice women, beautiful women who are in their separation, their purification, and he is eyeing them over, searching their wisdom, searching their beauty, seeing what pleases him. And he chooses one, right? This is not how the Lord chose us. He didn't cause us to parade before Him and then we, as it were, adorn ourselves with natural beauty, with you know, made-up beauty, with uh, any sort of beauty in ourselves. But He genuinely and graciously has set His love upon us freely. Now before, that gives us the uneasiness of well, then what anchor is there for our hope? You know, if it's not something in me, then how can I be assured that He will always be for me? Here's how. Because He's faithful. Do you remember what He said of Himself? That He is abundant in goodness and truth. And that word truth is intimately attached to faithfulness. That in setting His love upon His people, He binds Himself to them unalterably. And when it is we come and we appeal to that grace, we as it were appeal to the strong and unalterable chain that He would bind to us to enjoy His fellowship. No sinner has this as a right. No congregation has this as a right of their own doing. But we have it as a guarantee by His grace to enjoy His fellowship. You know what happens when we backslide there's a subtle temptation, sometimes not so subtle, that hits us and we say, well, who am I that I should ever hope to enjoy the intimate fellowship with God? It is almost embarrassing to read certain words of the Scriptures as God reproves His people. He uses language that treats His bride as one who had sold herself for sexual pleasure. That's strong. That is language the Lord uses. Now as difficult as it is to think of that, it's what God presents to us. We want to think, if that's what my sin is, I first need to get myself right before I have a right then to enjoy His fellowship. But Moses is pointing this out for us and he's saying that's not the answer. That's not the way the equation works. Our only hope is not in our fixing ourselves that we they may be a fit place for your dwelling. 
Our only hope is that your self-proclamation of your grace, of your mercy, of your faithfulness, of your truth, of your forgiveness would then be applied to us that we may enjoy your fellowship. When you and I get this, there is a massive liberating notion that hits us that doesn't make us careless, that doesn't make us carefree, but rather fixes us upon our happy hope which rests entirely with God and Christ Jesus, which then has the power to purify us. We love Him because He first loved us. And yet even though we understand that conceptually, prayerfully we often fail to maintain that relationship. Moses gets it. The only way we will ever enjoy your fellowship is as you by your grace would walk among us. Secondly, the benefit of pardon. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Elsewhere, Moses will point out strictly and solely the sin of God's people and what they've done. But here, Moses includes himself. And he says, it's mine as well as theirs. And brethren, we have a little whisper of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Because Christ took upon Himself our iniquity and our sin. And He bears it up before God as His forerunner and shadow Moses is doing here. Moses wasn't personally guilty of all the stiff-necked aspects of the people. Moses wasn't particularly guilty of all the iniquity and sin that Israel committed. In fact, on many occasions, Moses was free of those sins. And the only reason, as the Lord worked out His purpose, that they were not consumed was because Moses planted his face on the floor multiple times and said, do not destroy this people. And yet he, as this shadow of a mediator, is showing us how Christ approaches God on our behalf. Paul says that Christ was made to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? We see elsewhere, Isaiah 53, for instance, 1 Peter chapter 2, as we read, He in His own self bare our sin in His own body on the tree. He's bearing it on Himself that the people would be forgiven. Notice the word pardon means to forgive. A simple word. To take the guilt of our iniquity and our sin. Think of that acknowledgement that Moses is providing. It's not just sin as the transgression of the law of God, but also as sin is the iniquity, the twisted corruption within us, those wrong desires, those faulty desires, those sinful lusts and wicked thoughts and bitter postures and all of that immorality within, both the outworking and the root of its source in us. So we're told elsewhere, for instance, that we should confess our actual and original sin. And in some sense, that's what Moses is doing. It's to be picked up by a later Jude, namely David, when he confesses not only the sin of his murder and adultery, but also that he was conceived in sin and iniquity. And so he's presenting the whole reality of sin and saying the whole thing, every aspect, all of it, if you don't deal with the whole thing, we are undone. 
We stand guilty in your sight. So what's our hope? It's really a plea. No bartering, no bargaining, but simply remit it. Freely forgive it. It's parallel to what Christ teaches us when He says, of course, give us this day our daily bread. Have you ever thought the boldness of the word give? Could you imagine someone approaching you and whether with a smile or with something that's not a smile to you and saying, give me food today. You'd feel a little put off because of the boldness of the claim. But Christ says, when you approach your Father in heaven, say, give us this day our daily bread. It's parallel to forgive us our debts. This notion is a very bold notion. Forgive it. Freely forgive it. Pardon it. Think of what's being asked. Our infinite guilt before You being the infinite God the infinite corruption within us opposing the One who is good and beautiful. All of this shame that is ours and should be hung about our neck and drive us down to the depths of hell and You would be praised by the angels for bringing that to pass. We come to You and we say forgive us. Brethren, our sins are so often neglected And we sort of say and we treat them as little controllable things where we say, well, everyone sins and I've got this under control and I'm not letting it break out in this scene and I'm not letting it break out in that scene. And yet, so soon as we get a true sense of our sin, we realize how large they loom over us. Moses has gained a sense of that. And so he comes to him and he says, pardon. That's all I can ask. I can't. What what sufficiency is it for me to say reduce? That does nothing. One sin would be uh, sufficient to have us undone for all eternity. I do not come and say treat them as less than they are. I come with the bold claim of here's the whole bill of what I owe. And I'm asking to strike through the whole thing and say it's forgiven. It's paid in full. There's no more that you have to owe. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Notice he doesn't add something to the end of saying it, you know, pardon our iniquity and our sin because we're no longer going to be stiff-necked. He doesn't say pardon our iniquity and our sin because we're never going to sin again. But he comes and he claims the mercy and grace of God and appeals to Him to forgive the sin freely. Why? On what ground? Because of everything that God has just said. Because He's merciful and gracious and so on. What a benefit this is. And notice just a few things regarding it. It's a benefit that can only be given to sinners. This is similar to why Christ says, you know, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Because hypothetically, someone who's righteous doesn't need to repent. What that means then is necessarily if we're going to enjoy the benefit, we have to come and acknowledge the fact of our own sins. And so, of course, God gives us encouragement. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But notice something further. It's not only a benefit to sinners. It's a benefit, just to make it more explicit, 
to sinners aware of their sinfulness. So the Pharisees thought themselves fine and well and good, and Christ treated them in one sense that way, saying, well, then I've not come to call you to repentance. I've come to call sinners. He's not saying they weren't sinners, but he's saying, in effect, until you realize you're a sinner, the good news means nothing to you. It's not good because you don't see the need for it. And so it's necessary as Moses is here both personally experiencing and as he is publicly attesting, he's acknowledging as aware his own and his people's sin. And if you and I are going to enjoy the benefit of God's goodness, this necessarily means that we must become aware of our sin. We must give some effort because, to be fair, our hearts resist the effort to discover our sin. You know, children, they go to a pond or a lake or a river, and there are minnows that are in the stream, and you can see them. Some of them are hard to see, you know, the way the stream's going, the way their sort of natural camouflage blends in with the rocks or the other surface, and yet you can fix your eye well enough and you start to see, and you pick up on it, and the child will then try to dash their arm into it and grab this little minnow. They'll find, well, that doesn't work. And then they'll get clever and they'll put little pieces of bait and they'll put their hand down and they'll think, well, now I'm going to catch it, and it swims away. It takes diligence, effort, persistence to discover and lay hold of those little minnows. The same can be said of our sins. It's not something you can say, you know, I'm going to have five minutes to discover my sin and get on with my life. To discover our sin takes time. It takes spiritual wisdom, spiritual maturity. It takes deliberation and thoughtfulness and prayer guided by God's Word. And some give up saying it's not worth it because I can't really bring myself to a sensitivity to my sins. Or I get a sense of it and then I say, now what? Well, this is what. The discovery of sin brings us to acknowledge our sins for the grand benefit of the assurance of their being pardoned. We would have zero hesitation to go to the doctor and say, give me a full-scale, comprehensive scan. I want to know every single disease if we were assured that the doctor could heal anything discovered. But when we're uncertain and we have these nagging pains or this worried thought and we say, well, what might it be? I'll put it off unless it becomes worse. And if it becomes worse, well, then I'll go. And yet, we're a little skittish and timid and fearful, you know, thinking that somehow if I just wait, well, then the issue is going to resolve itself. And many times we actually treat our sins like that. You know, I've gotten this little prick of conscience. You know, everyone has sinned, so I'm just going to carry on and I'm going to ignore it. And we get another prick of conscience, say, well, you know, I've sort of dealt with that and we fool ourselves. But if we were convinced, I have a significant symptom of a heart issue, of a systemic failure, and not only am I sure that the doctor to whom I would go is able to detect, identify, and rightly explain what it is, but if I were certain, of course in this life we aren't, but if I were certain that the doctor would be able, without fault, 
to heal the pain, to heal the problem, to heal the illness, what hesitation will we go or have in saying, give me this scan, tell me what it is. It doesn't matter if it's cancer, whatever stage, it doesn't matter if it's ALS, however matured, it doesn't matter what the problem is because I know that you're able and willing to deal with it. We do not speak lightly when we say that cancer, as miserable as it is, and ALS, as miserable as it is as it advances, and all other sorts of debilitating diseases, as miserable as they are, are nothing compared to our sins. And yet, brethren, we have the perfect assurance that in bringing our sins to the Lord, He will pardon them fully, freely, willingly. It's worth the labor of discovery, if only to enjoy the great benefit of the pardon, which comes to us freely by the goodness of God. Well, lastly, the benefit of belonging. This is when we understand the words If we could rank them, it would be the most audacious of all that Moses presents. Dwell with us. We can imagine, of course, someone of great dignity and ability dwelling with someone well beneath them, if only by grit of ability and so on, or their great virtue. We can even understand what it is to pardon someone who has done tremendously wicked things against one. Here Moses says, take us for thine inheritance. This is Moses' way of saying, treasure us as your special possession. The scriptures are full on this very truth. You can see something similar in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that casts light on this expression. Deuteronomy in chapter 32 You'll see as they're recorded in verse 9, testifies the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the lot of His inheritance. But Notice what the next verse says. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. What a blessing this is to have God take us as his inheritance. There are certain things that hit us. We don't really concern ourselves with it. It's windy outside, such wind that raises small pieces of gravel or dirt and it hits us against our skin. It might sting a little bit, but we can bear with it. One thing we will do is shut our eyes because we're diligent to protect our eyes. It's something that's a treasured organ to each of us. It is one of the most difficult of afflictions we read of in the Scriptures when people have their eyes put out, Samson among them. You'll remember as well that there was a wicked king of God's people who had rebelled, and the king that overtook them had his sons 
slain before his eyes and then had his eyes put out. The last thing that the king saw was the death of his sons. The eyes, you see, are tremendous organs to see the world and then to consider things and have memories, both good and bad. And so we do almost anything we can when the rest of our body is going through difficulty to cover and protect our eyes. And here, God is said to treasure us as one treasures the apple of His eye. It's something special to us, the eye. God is communicating that to us. My people, my people are like that to me. I treasure them. Whatever else is true in the world, whatever, can we say it this way, whatever the angels are to me, yet my people are as the apple of my eye. Notice earlier in Exodus chapter 19, there at verses 5 and 6, God has already made this point in His Word. And so you can see other aspects of how it is Moses is returning God's Word to him in prayer. In Exodus in chapter 19, notice at verse 5, Now therefore, if ye will obey My voice indeed and keep My covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto Me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. What is it that Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 as we read earlier? 1 Peter 2 and there at verse 9. He writes to the church scattered abroad in the midst of affliction, in the midst of trial, and he says there in 1 Peter 2.9, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness to His marvelous light. Brethren, you as by virtue of God's grace as a member of His church are treasured by the Lord. Whatever you treasure, you know what that means. You might treasure your spouse, you might treasure your child, your grandchildren, a friend, the church, God's Word. All of these things are legitimate objects of our treasure, so long as, of course, they are subordinate to the great treasure we have in God. But we know what that means. We delight in those things. If it's a human that we have treasure in, as it were, when they're injured, we're injured. When they're having a difficult time, we are concerned with it. When they're blessed, we're blessed. There's this great delight in them, a great interest in them. And Moses is saying, make us your treasured people. He would have no right to do so had it not been God had already said as much and that God had not testified of His great goodness. They are a treasured people who rest upon the grace of God. Here we go, always trying to make ourselves fit to be God's treasured people. But Moses discerns it's only by God's grace. My being a delight to God is because He is gracious and good. And it's there where real stability comes. Because if you and I try to find 
the reason for our being treasured by God in our own personal piety, what happens is God's treasure will waver. Because sometimes we'll be strong, other times weak. Sometimes we'll be diligent, other times we'll be uh, distracted. But when it is that we realize our hope of this benefit is because of God's mercy, it's then that we see how firm that foundation of comfort is and how sure this benefit to us is by His grace. Brethren, see what a gracious foundation He provides for you. And a gracious foundation is better than any half-merited foundation that we have sought to stand upon before. Because this foundation, think of it, is secured to us by God Himself. And when you start to see this, you see all of the outworkings of this foundation are because of God's goodness. So why is it He sent His Son? Well, it would be right to say, well, He sent His Son because we're sinners. But then that only raises the question, why then did He send His Son for us who are sinners? Well, to save us. Why did He send His Son for us to save us? And eventually you come back to this declaration and proclamation of God Himself because He's good and merciful and gracious. And so the grand display of His love to us in Christ is because of this truth regarding God Himself. And that means then that all of the benefits that are ours in Christ and by Christ are once again because of all of this goodness that God has declared of Himself. Every aspect of grace, even Christ Jesus as our Savior, and heaven, forgiveness of sin, sanctification, glorification, all of it is because of this that Moses has received. And we then can come and say, as I have found grace in your sight, dwell with me. As I have found grace in your sight, pardon me. As I have found grace in your sight, take me as your treasure. But we can do as Moses did as well. Because I found grace in your sight, be with us. Because I found grace in your sight, pardon us. Because I found grace in your sight, treasure us. As we do, brethren, we'll find the great encouragement of living by God's grace and that by faith. So make use of this for your own soul. The Lord's people throughout history have wrestled with how to define theology. One of the best that has had much uh, use among uh, the Puritans, both English and Dutch, and the Covenanters and so on, is that theology is the doctrine of living unto God. Notice here for a moment as we close, God has instructed Moses regarding Himself. There's doctrine, theology, It's learning, instructing. But what happens is Moses turns it into prayer and he lives by it. Here's a way to measure. Do you understand God's goodness? How much of your prayer is founded and saturated with His goodness? That's true theology. 
coming to God and appealing to His goodness and grace and the revelation of Himself and Jesus Christ and His work and saying, that's why, for this reason, for that reason, pointing out His grace, pointing out His salvation, pointing out the Savior Jesus Christ. And when it is we do so, brethren, it's then that our lives will be filled with all of the other benefits that flow from these. And so may it be that the Lord's proclamation of Himself, His goodness, and all that that entails would lead us to the delightful exercise of believing prayer relying upon His grace.